Yeah, good to be with y'all. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, I said earlier, I'm Brooks. I'm the pastor uh, with RUF at University of Houston. See some old U of H people, some current U of H people, and then fans. Yeah, not old, but just older. You know, it's all relative. Um, but yeah, it's good to be with all y'all today. Uh, and then uh, today we're going to be talking about how Jesus uh, interacts with failures. Uh, and I hope that's an encouragement to you. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, before I read the passage, uh, what you see over and over again in Jesus' interactions with people is that not only is he a man that people thought, you know, that they needed to follow, they needed to listen to, but he over and over again starts saying things and doing things that show that he's more than a man, that he's God. And so when you see an interaction like this, um, regardless of where you stand with Jesus, you need to entertain the possibility you're not just watching a man interact with people, that you're actually watching God. You're seeing what he cares about, what he values, and what he does. And, and this is really, really encouraging for us because we all uh, are failures. And when I was um, probably about 10 years ago now, um, living in Nashville, Tennessee, newly married, a um, bunch of friends, wanted to come over, and we were going to go to a restaurant that night, go to a bar that night, and uh, they, I think they actually like taxied over. I don't, know, I don't think anybody taxis anymore, but they taxied over to my apartment, and my friend John Mark, uh, who is an impulsive, spunky guy, he calls me ahead of time. He's like, Brooks, I got to go to the bathroom. Can I use your bathroom before we go? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. So we lived in this really, really, really small uh, apartment, and I opened the door. We had, I had a glass door and then uh, the normal door. So I opened the normal door, left the glass door uh, closed. I went back into uh, our bedroom. We just had, like, basically think a living room, bedroom. That's it. Um, going to the, in the bedroom, I'm, like, getting some things ready for the night. Uh, and all of a sudden, I hear an explosion in the apartment. I'm like, what was that? So I walk around the corner, and I don't have to walk far because we have a small apartment, right? And I see John Mark standing in my living room, and he has not opened a door because what he did is he ran up the stairs. We're on the second floor. He ran up the stairs, and he leapt through the glass door, and there's glass everywhere. The explosion was him breaking our door with his body. <laughs> now, he was fine. I don't even know how. He was okay. He was not cut. <laughs> He's miraculous. Um, but he was so ashamed. And so I had to lean over the edge of the rail and say, hey, guys, we, we got to like clean some stuff up before we leave. So we spent like an hour and a half cleaning. And we honestly felt, you know, we found glass for like years to come. Um, but that night, that whole night, I just said, Jamark, it's fine. It's okay. Like, we'll, we'll get it fixed. It's fine. You know, and he just, he, he could barely look at me. He was just like, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. Like, what do I have to do? I'm like, you have to pay for a door. <laughs> no, but he's like, I feel so bad. He, he just, he had this sense about him that he had to prove to me that he was guilty enough. And this is exactly the way we are with God. We, we do things to, to break a door. We, we defy him, and then we feel this need to be guilty enough until he'll accept us back. And don't get me wrong, guilt is, guilt is not necessarily bad. It, it is a good thing when we've actually done something that is harmful and destructive to us and to other people and against what God wants for us, right? It's good to feel that. It's not good to stay there, though. It's not good to be stuck in it. 
And so here, we're going to see Jesus getting people unstuck, getting people out of that guilt. So if, if you will, stand with me, and I'm going to read John chapter 21. I'll, I'll read from uh, verse 1, and I'll stop at verse 17. So it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his, or put on his outer garment, for it was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat and dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what does Jesus do with all this? The first thing he does when he engages people that are stuck in their guilt like this is he befriends them. That's what I want you to see first, that he befriends them. Look, in, in verse 14, uh, John tells us the context of this situation. And he says in verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, my assumption is that many of you in this room believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe some of you don't. Either way, I'm going to give a quick little detour of like, how, how might you look at this passage to say, yeah, maybe he actually did rise from the dead? You know, where's a good reason to believe this from here? So the first thing, the reporting style of these accounts actually points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So you might commonly hear an objection like this. You might have this objection yourself. These are fictitious stories, and so they ought not be taken literally. 
But what's interesting about, like, when you read the, the gospel accounts is that they actually um, mirror what psychologists say today is called recollective memory. Recollective memory would be like if you were asked today to tell something that happened to you yesterday or a year ago or 20 years ago, you would recall it in a certain way, and there would be like telltale signs that you're actually saying something from memory, okay? And this has them. Here are some of them. There's insignificant details. This passage is full of details that don't seem to matter. (laughs) It's as if someone's just saying, this is just what it was. Verse 6, they cast the net on the right side. Why not the left side? Verse 7, Peter puts on his outer garment before jumping in the water. It doesn't really matter. Verse 8, there's, they're about 100 yards off from the land. Verse 11, the amount of fish is 153. Why? I just remembered it that way, right? Um, there's unvivid imagery. So you read this account, and there's nothing flashy going on. There's nothing, no one's flying around, no one's glowing, there's not like a loud voice from the sky, it's very plain. It's almost boring. It's as if someone's just recalling something they remembered. Even though it's amazing what they're recalling, they're just, they're not trying to puff it up. The last thing, there's embarrassing details. In verse 12, the disciples kind of are are looking at Jesus and they don't want to actually ask and make sure that it's him. If you're making up a religious movement, and these are your key leaders, why paint them as being uncertain about, should we ask if it's Jesus or not? They didn't feel the need to airbrush it. They just said, this is the way it was. So it, it looks like modern recollective memory. These, these actually don't read like fictitious fables, but eyewitness reportage. Second quick reason. It's just an unpopular belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, you might hear this, you know, early Christians made up this story to gain power. They didn't. That's the thing. When they started, when, when, when they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, they started worshiping him as God. That was blasphemy for a Jew. He should be put to death. Whoops, sorry. That was, um, and then it was also treason for a Greek, a non-Jew, because you're worshiping someone else's Lord other than Caesar. You should be put to death. And in fact, that actually did happen. <laughs> Everyone, is, to our knowledge, except for John, was put to death for this belief. They'd gained nothing from saying Jesus rose from the dead. We have good reasons to believe this is true. This actually happened. So with that, what, did, what do we see him doing? Jesus rises from the dead, and he has breakfast with them. Right? Verse 1, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then two others of the disciples were there. Um, They decide to go fishing at night. This is something they were all very familiar with, something they did. And so they go, and it it was kind of an epic fail. They caught nothing. You know, they didn't get anything from their catch. And then in verse 4, Jesus is on the shore, and he's calling out to them, saying, how'd it go? What do we, you know, they're like, we have nothing. And he says, you know, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. They do it. Verse 11 says they catch over 150 fish. And it, this is the moment in verse 7 when it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, that's John's way of talking about himself. It's probably kind of a jab toward the other disciples. Like, he kind of loved me more than y'all. Um, Jesus was more fond of some than others. That's okay, right? You know, and he says the disciple whom Jesus loved said, it's the Lord. Peter then throws himself into the water. <laughs> he doesn't want to wait. 
He swims to get to Jesus. Um, And they get to the shore. What's happening? Nothing amazing. Nothing fantastic. You have Jesus over a fire cooking bread and fish. And he's just like, come eat with me. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because in their time and in our time, you only eat with people you consider friends. You only eat with people that you actually consider close or you want to get close to them. You use food to do it. And this is very true, but here's the deal. For them, the disciples had actually abandoned Jesus at every turn up to this point. Like when Jesus is leading up to the cross, he invites Peter, James, and John, his kind of key three people, um, to pray with him and to stay awake because Jesus is really stressed about what's going to happen and they can't stay awake with him. They fail him. Then Peter says, I will never deny you. I, I just, I so trust you and believe in you. I'm never going to turn my back on you. And then when Jesus is actually in the process of the trial, Peter denies him three times in front of people that are irrelevant to him because he cares more about what they might do to him than about his allegiance to Jesus. And then yet again, to our knowledge, except for John, every disciple abandons Jesus while Jesus is dying on the cross. No one's there. They're too afraid to be there. They're gone. And so you have these kinds of people, (laughs) people that have abandoned Jesus in every single way and at every turn, and you have Jesus eating with them. He's communicating to them that although they're failures, they are his friends still. This is huge. Do you believe God is this way? That's really the question, right? I mean, remember, Jesus claimed he was God over and over again. When he rose from the dead, the disciples worshipped him as God. This is God. If, if, if you are God and you come back in all your power and all your glory, what would you do first? You would not eat breakfast with a bunch of failures who abandoned you days prior. That's not what you would choose to do. Maybe it is. Maybe you're better than me. I wouldn't do that. This is what he does. Do you believe God's like that? No, we don't. We don't at all. Here's, Here's how I know this. I know myself with this. We get stuck in two different ways. We either get stuck in moralism or in immoralism. This is how it comes out. This actually shows you don't believe this. Moralism is um, I have to be good enough in order for God to stay on my side. So you actually get you know, pretty prideful when you're doing well, and then you also get pretty sad when you're not. You, you oscillate between the two because it's all up to you in order to either get God's love or keep it. Or you might be in a position, this is still moralism, where you kind of, you do something that's sinful, and then you kind of have this probation period, this waiting period of, I need to feel bad enough for long enough before God will take me back, before I can pray, before I can read the Bible, before I can come to this thing in church. (laughs) I had to feel bad enough to get him to come back. That's moralism. And again, let let me, I said earlier, guilt is not necessarily bad. But our problem is that we think that by feeling guilty enough, that will get God to love us. Notice in this passage, their guilt, Peter's guilty toward the end. We'll talk about that in a second. But their guilt doesn't get Jesus to do this. It's Jesus' love that gets him to do it. That, that's why he eats with them. So moralism doesn't work, and this is what we do. Or you get stuck in immoralism. 
maybe this is something you're in now or it you know, has been in the past, whatever, but it's basically you know you're not good enough and so you stop trying. <laughs> I'm just going to do anything that I want. It doesn't matter. I can't get his love, so why even try to work for it? And so you just lose yourself. But Jesus befriends people like this. It's beautiful. And notice this too. Jesus befriends them before they did anything to deserve it. It's before they've said sorry. It's before they've made a promise to not do it again. It's before they've actually shown that they're worth eating with. That's the moment that he eats with them. Like God is good to us when we're not good to him. And he actually accepts us well before we've actually said anything that's acceptable, (laughs) before we've apologized. Like you might be stuck in something and you think, I have to grovel my way back to God. That's not what they do. He goes after them. It's amazing. It's amazing. You, you, and, I, you and I don't, um, he befriends us not because we deserve it. He befriends us because we need it. Those are very different things. And what would that mean? So if you start accepting this, <laughs> the God of the universe befriends you even when you're like, the least friendly person, the least friendable person, what do you do when people fail you? You befriend them. That's what we have to do. We have to extend that to other people. When, when I was in RUF at the University of Tennessee, my campus pastor was named Brent Harriman. And uh, Brent, I loved Brent. He was, he was really the first pastor that, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and he was the first pastor that was involved in my life. And uh, so I, I respected him highly, right? And met with him a bunch, uh, as, as we RUF pastors do. And uh, one day, and also what we RUF pastors do, well, I'm sure Blake does it too, but, you know, we ask hard questions, right? And so he asked me something very point blank. Is this in your life, or is this happening, right? And I lied. I said, no, I'm good. <laughs> and it just ate at me that night uh, at home. So I texted him, said, hey, can we get together again? And so I just kind of shuffled into his office and said, hey, when you asked me that yesterday, I I lied to you. Um, And I just felt like I'd let him down completely because he was the one person that had shown me so much grace and kindness up to that point. And you know what he did? He said, you want to go on a walk? We were in his office. I was like, sure. It was a sunny day in Knoxville. So we went on a walk and we talked. He assured me that I was forgiven, but he just talked with me. He didn't rub my face in it. You know, he said, eventually, he goes, hey, do you want to go eat something? So we ate. What was he doing? He was befriending me out of my sin. That's exactly what he was doing. And that's what we need. That's what you need to give to other people. There are people here. There are people in your jobs. There are people in your family. There's people that you live next to. There's anybody that you let close enough to you is going to fail you. The question is, what do you do when that happens? Jesus is... um, model is you pursue them before they deserve pursuit. And you, you eat with, something magical happens over food. Eat with people. <laughs> you might actually like them more. <laughs> and that's exactly what he does. He's trying to show them they are not the worst thing that they've ever done. He befriends them. Then he heals them from their past. He, he doesn't just buddy up with them. He actually does something with their past. This is what uh, Jesus is doing with Peter. 
verses 15 through 17 over the breakfast. He, he, he asked this question over and over again, Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, it's Peter's other name. Do you love me? He asked him that three times uh, in, in different ways, and Peter keeps saying yes. Why? What's so fascinating is that you see that there's a charcoal fire that they're cooking all this food on. The last time, at least in the gospel accounts, that Peter's been around a charcoal fire was when he was denying that he even knew Jesus at all. So Peter can even just like smell (laughs) the memory of like denying that he even knew Jesus for three times. And this is why he's asking him three times, do you love me? So in John 18, the servant Uh, John 18, verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. And then John 18, verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they sat around the charcoal fire. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. John 18, verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And then in Matthew's account and Luke's, it says that after this happens, Peter weeps bitterly. He's really sad. He's really broken over it. Because the person, (laughs) Jesus was the person in the world that Peter did not want to fail, did not want to deny. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's letting him down. So what's Jesus doing? Is he trying to make Peter feel bad? No. Peter already feels bad enough. Is he trying to figure out Peter's true intention? Like, is he truly uncertain? No. He knows what Peter thinks, feels. He knows everything about Peter. What's he doing then? He's trying to heal the denial in the past. Three and three. Three denials, three questions of love. Because that's actually how the gospel heals us. It takes us through our past in order to heal us so we can actually do something right now in the present. That's the way it works. Here's what's interesting. We have to ask the question, something had to have happened uh, to change Peter's response to Jesus here. Here's what I mean. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he's first kind of uh, befriending and partnering with the disciples in Luke 5, a very similar event happens a very similar fishing event. So just like now, they go out to fish. Just like now, they catch nothing. And just like now, Peter suge- or, uh, Jesus uh, suggests, throw your net on the other side and you'll catch more. And they do. The key difference between then and now was that when Peter starts realizing that Jesus might be more than a man, that he might be God, he responds this way. He goes, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This time, he realizes it's Jesus, and he hurls himself into the water to swim at him. Why, in Luke 5, does Peter start figuring out who Jesus is, and he feels sinful and unworthy and unacceptable? But now, he actually wants to get closer to him. He feels acceptable. He feels worthy. What happened in the middle? It's the cross. It's the cross. Peter saw Jesus, God in the flesh, dying for his sins so he'd never be charged for them, judged for his sins so he'd never be judged for them. 
You know, Jesus being treated as if he was actually unacceptable so that Peter could be treated as if he was the most acceptable person on the planet. And so Peter is convinced now, there's nothing I can do that's so bad that Jesus won't accept me again, that God won't accept me again. He's healing him of his past. We, do, we kind of disbelieve this in different ways. The, I think the key one is we minimize our sin thinking that it somehow maximizes his love. We minimize our sin. We basically say, I'm not that bad. I'm better than the person next to me. At least I'm not my dad. You know, we have phrases or we say things to ourselves or to other people or we say, you know, I know I'm struggling with this now, but one day I'll be okay. Like we try to do anything we can to make it to where we are um, more lovable than we are. But that doesn't work. Minimizing everything bad about us doesn't actually help God love us anymore. And then you might do this. This is probably a more rare one, but you minimize his love in order to maximize the weight of our sin. So it's you, you rightly understand how bad you've been or how bad sin is, but you think that I have to feel bad enough or long enough and grovel enough and really hate myself enough in order for that love to be actualized. But that's not how he's working. The gospel it <laughs> kind of says both. Like, there are things in your life that are really that bad, but his love for you is that good. That's what the gospel says. That's what he's showing them. That's what he's showing Peter here. Like, your moralistic pride is that bad, but his love for moralistically prideful people is that good. You know, your, your sexual sins are that bad, but his love toward people with sexual sin is that good. That, that's what he's doing, right? You can apply this to anything in your life. Substance abuse. Selfish use of your time, <laughs> wrongs that in the past that cling to you now that you just can't forget. Whatever failure is there for you, that's bad. But his love is better. His love is that good. It's, it's almost like Jesus is saying here, he's like, Peter, do you love me? But he's saying, do you, do you realize how much I really love you? Like, do you get it? And, and we don't. I, I, I'm convinced of this, that we really think that there is something that is so bad in all of us that God won't love us. He won't keep doing it. But Jesus, when he died, he said it's finished. He didn't say it's finished for the junior varsity sins, but not for the varsity sins, not for the ones that you happen to have. He said it's finished. It's done. He's healing them from the past. Why? So you can give them a future. It's the last thing. It's amazing. Look, this is what he keeps saying to Peter. Verses 15, 16, and 17. After this, do you love me? Yes, I do. Interaction that happens. Jesus says, verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Feeding and tending. Basically, and I, the, I, the uh, imagery for, of a shepherd, basically giving people are giving sheep what they need physically and also tending to, uh, giving them the words they need. So it's the words they need and the care that they need. He's basically equipping Peter for ministry. I want you to give my words, give my care to these people. And so we have to ask the question, how is Jesus putting a person like Peter into ministry? <laughs> He's a failure, right? 
And we might respond and go, well, yeah, but he repented. He got better. He turned around, kind of. Because later on, years later, 5, 10, 15 years later, Peter in Acts 10, he's actually doing the same thing. He has been called to start befriending Gentiles, non-Jews, and he doesn't want to do it because he's actually kind of racist and nationalistic. He looks down on non-Jews. And, so, and he also starts dividing himself from people uh, because he's afraid of what people think about him. He's doing the same exact thing again. In Galatians 2, a couple years after that, mind you, Peter's been in ministry a long time. He separates himself from Gentiles again because he's afraid of what Jewish people are going to think of him if they see him eating with non-Jewish people. Apparently, Peter struggled a lot with what people thought about him. (laughs) And then he sinned as a result of it. Peter failed, but he's going to fail again. And so Jesus is saying to a failure like this who will fail again, yeah, I still want you to serve people, though. I still want you to love people. I still want you to go out there uh, and do this. Because, look, repentance is not perfection. Repentance is the process of failing and then going back to Jesus over and over and over again because he's going to keep loving you. And we can, we can easily go, well, yeah, but like, what about false repentance? Or what about someone that says they're sorry and they're really not? I mean, that gets in the weeds of it. But the, the, the reality is he commits himself to failures who fail again. Here's the biggest thing that I think is most encouraging from all of this. Jesus calls failures to share his love because they're the only ones that know that they need it. What Could it be that Jesus used Peter as powerfully as he did precisely because of how much of a failure Peter was? Like, could it be that when he tells Peter to do all this, um, Peter knows how much he needs Jesus' love because of how much he's failed in the past? I just think that there are things about us that we, we, we think this disqualifies me from being used by God. What Jesus is showing is actually, ironically, the things you hate the most about you might qualify you to share God's love to people. They might qualify you because you know <laughs> that you need it. And then when you actually start grappling with his love like this and you share it with other people, you start sharing it honestly Because you're not just going to people going, oh, you need God's love, but I really don't. You share it because you know that we all do. And then you share it humbly, not looking down on anybody else because you know you need it. It's personal. It's humble. But then it's it's not just um, an idea anymore either. You're not just sharing a theological truth. You're sharing the God of the universe who loved you at the expense of himself. And that's different. And that's what he's calling Peter to do. Let me end with this uh, story. A friend of mine, um, he got stuck in uh, drugs, alcohol, kinds of stuff, and eventually was uh, addicted. He was addicted to uh, a version of heroin. And uh, we knew something was wrong uh, for basically like a summer. He was just acting very differently and and closed off from a lot of us, uh, his friends. And the night before I got married... He's in, he's in my wedding. The night before I got married, uh, he tells me all of this. 
uh, and he says that he can't uh, get over it, that he's actually going to have to use um, some of it the next day, otherwise he would be sick. And so uh, he was high at my wedding. Um, and uh, about six days later, after we got back from the honeymoon, uh, me and two other friends and his father drove uh, three hours to show up on his doorstep to do an intervention. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine his eyes when he opens the door and he sees us and knows why we're there. It was beautiful because we, we just got to share him how much we loved him and, and how we, we hated what was happening in his life, that he was, he was hurting himself. He didn't realize it. And his dad just hugged him, uh, and they cried. He got clean for about eight or nine months after uh, he went to a rehab, but then he relapsed. And he moved to California to try a different one at that point. And I know from talking to him then, he just felt like that things were never going to get any better, you know, that he was just not going to change. And it was right then that he started to stay in sobriety. He eventually became a Christian, uh, he's been sober now for about nine or ten years. You know what he does? You know what his job is? He works in drug and alcohol addiction. He is a uh, what's called a sober companion. Basically gets paired up with people to walk them through this. He works in a detox center, and he actually does the intake for anybody who's coming in. Why? Because he knows it. He knows that world. He knows what it's like to fall that hard and yet to be okay. So somebody, like my friend, who failed in all these ways, God is using him in the most powerful ways in people's lives that without his past, he wouldn't be able to do it. That's what Jesus does with us. He looks at you with everything that's wrong with you, and he, he befriends you. He says, I'm going to keep liking you. <laughs> I'm going to heal you from the past. And I'm going to say, hey, you have more to do. You, you have something to give to the world. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this truth. Uh, I thank you that you treated your disciples this way, and you did that to be a picture to us that you will love us out of the worst things that are in our lives. I do pray that you would... Uh, press the truth on us all that our failures don't disqualify us, but qualify us to share your love because of what you've done. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.